everyone, and welcome to CRU Sustainability Podcast, The Big Questions. My name is Jamana Salahin. I'm Chief Economist and Head of Sustainability at CRU, and I will be your host today. This is the final podcast in a series that we have hosted around COP26. We have covered topics as diverse as electric vehicles, recycling, hydrogen, and carbon emissions. With CRU's team back from Glasgow, today's podcast is about the key takeaways from COP26. Will it be remembered as a success or as Greta Thunberg put it, a lot of blah, blah, blah. Joining me today is Frank Aish and Charlie Durant who work with me in sustainability, Shankardeep Mukherjee, team leader of CRU's India office and Dimitri Popov, senior analyst Cole from our London office. Thank you all for joining me today. Before we kick off, I should stress that what came out of COP is a vast topic for discussion, and today is just the beginning of a long journey ahead to effectively address climate change. The discussion will continue at COP27, which we know will be in Egypt next year. So let's now dive into the nuts and bolts behind India's new pledge, the phase down, not phase out of coal, finance, electric vehicles, and adaptation. So let's start with India. Shankadeep, over to you. Tell us about India's pledges. Thank you, Jumana. Prime Minister Modi made five pledges on behalf of India. They include four strict NDCs by 2030 and ultimately be net zero by 2070. The first NDC is to increase non-fossil energy capacity by 500 gigawatts. We have grown this capacity at an average of 9% over the last few years. And by the end of 31st October this year, the figure stood at 156 gigawatts. So to reach 500 by 2030, we need to achieve 14% growth in the current decade. The second pledge is around how much of our energy requirement will be from renewable sources. Again, this has grown by 9% over the last few years. At present, our power requirement is around 1,700 trillion watt hours and around 22% of this is from renewable sources. Given our internal estimates of power demand by 2030, the growth here needs to be around 17% in this current decade. The third pledge is around reducing India's projected emissions by 1 billion tons. And the fourth is around reducing India's carbon intensity by 45%. And Shankadeep, um, in in the West, there's been a lot of attention on the pledge to reach 50% renewable power by 2030 from 22% today. Is that a realistic and coherent pledge? So there has been some questions around whether the second pledge refers to capacity or requirement, and we need to wait for clarity on that. In any case, with capacity growing by 14% and requirement growing by 17%, we need to either increase our capacity utilization of renewable assets, import renewable power, or increase energy efficiencies of products and processes to reduce total power consumption. But we need to wait and check what sort of policies, etc., will be announced to support this pledge. Now, Shankadeep, you're based in Mumbai. Um, Can you tell us how these announcements from India went down in in the country domestically? Was it expected? 
is it seen as credible? Surely. So, I mean, it's still early days uh, since the announcement have been made, but many people see this as a realistic target. There are some questions around how the pledges stack up against each other, but uh, we need to wait and see on the clarifications and what kind of policies are announced to support the implementation of the pledges. I do have to maintain, mention that India has many multinational corporations who export to economies who have faster net zero target than India. So these companies have announced their own net zero targets. These include companies in the metals and mining space as well as automotive space, and they are much before the 2070 national target. So I'm sure as this leads to more business opportunities and more clarity is arrived on the pledges, uh, many other uh, companies will enter the fray as well. Thanks a lot, um, Shankardeep. Um, let me now turn to Dimitri. Um, Dimitri, the phase down of coal was another a big announcement at COP. Um, what's your assessment? Yeah, thank, thank you, Jumana. Well, um, firstly, there was um, a big announcement earlier about 190 strong coalition of countries and organizations uh, signing a pledge to phase out coal. Uh, this included some major coal consumers like Indonesia, Vietnam, South Africa and Poland, uh, as well as not very significant consumers like Chile or countries in the Western Europe that have already been uh, phasing out coal. And uh, the developed countries, they have pledged to phase out coal by 2030s and the developing countries by in 2040s. And uh, notably, India, China and US, they did not sign up to the pledge to phase out coal. And um, these countries are big consumers of, uh, of thermal coal. They account for around 75% of total thermal coal demand. Uh, but these countries, um, so India, China uh, and US, they did sign the final statement about the coal phase down. Um, in, um, although I don't think um, it makes um, a, a very significant um, difference that they did um, sign this because um, they did not sign that, that earlier uh, agreement. Um, so generally for, for our um, uh, forecasts, uh, from 2019, we expect that thermal coal demand fall by 9% uh, in 2030 and by 32% in uh, 2040. And these uh, new announcements from COP26, we think that potentially could lead a 15% decline by 2030 in, in thermal coal demand and by 42% by, by 2040. Uh, but if we consider where we need to be uh, in terms of uh, thermal coal demand in order to get us to 1.5 degree path, then uh, we need to decrease it by 50% already by 2030. Um, so even post COP26 announcement, uh, we're still not um, on that path for 1.5 degrees um, warming. And um, in order to get there, we we need to reduce thermal coal demand, uh, demand by an extra 2.2 billion tons um, by, by 2030. So there is still quite a lot of um, progress that needs to be done if, um, if we want to get to um, 1.5 degrees uh, uh, path. 
So, so thanks for that, Dimitri. So what I'm hearing is that, um, you know, the people who have signed the pledge marginally accelerates the decline of, of thermal use over the next, um, you know, up to 2030 and 2040. It's very, very marginal and way more needs to be done for us to get on the 1.5 degree pathway. Um, is that fair? Yes, yes, that's that's exactly right. Yeah. Okay. And and how do you interpret uh, the position of China and India in watering down the wording? What do you make of that? Um, I think that was mostly kind of a um, a political um, move um, to do, and I don't think it. Uh, well, it it doesn't really um, change anything because, uh, as I mentioned in earlier. They have um, they have not signed the agreement to phase out coal. Although we did see some surprising announcements, for example, from Indonesia and Vietnam that they are ready to phase out coal. Um, so the the wording, I, I don't think it makes um, much difference. Um, there have been some um, yeah kind of uh, new announcements, uh, but um, India and China remain the big, the biggest consumers of uh, of thermal coal. So, um, a lot more needs to be done from them in the future if we want to reduce global thermal coal use. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot, Dimitri. So now I'm going to turn uh, to finance and uh, Frank to bring you in here. In the in the in the podcast that we that we held where we talked about what should we expect. You explained to us that finance was going to be centre stage at COP26. And while I was at COP, I certainly noticed all the major financial players were present in Glasgow attending a number of COP fringe events. But what's your assessment of the announcements that we saw? Yes, thank you, Yumana. Absolutely. Uh, indeed, the financial markets took center stage, as predicted by us previously, uh, center stage for the first time, and this hasn't happened before. So that's that's good news. And clearly, there's momentum behind this, uh, with the Glasgow Financial Alliance for net zero growing in the number of participants, so that's banks, insurers, uh, asset managers, stock exchanges, index providers. So, so the number of participants in the financial markets joining that uh, initial alliance has gone up. And also the amount of uh, assets they manage has gone up, uh, and that is the $130 trillion in assets under management, which really made the headlines. So this is all good news, and uh, that is clearly a huge amount of money. Uh, it's now 130 billion, trillion, and it used to be 100 trillion, and that was brought out as, as a major step forward. But what hasn't really changed is uh, what does that actually mean? Uh, the 130 trillion assets under management is not necessarily all the money that will be spent on green activities or how quickly that money will move from traditional types of investment into green activities. And nothing has been said about that. And that is probably deliberate. All it's saying is that there's a growing number of businesses, uh, financial market businesses, with a lot of capital uh, behind them that are interested and keen to get involved in uh, helping the climate transition. Um, and then so that's that's good news. Uh, what actually is going to happen, we don't know yet. How much is it? How much quickly can we move it? That's all quite vague. Also, what uh, was what was made clear by Mark Carney is uh, that um, the, the 
capital markets need certain conditions to be met to make that money move. What are the what's the policy environment? What's the policy certainty around uh, climate change targets? They want certainty. They also want better reporting standards and accounting rules. And uh, the policy certainty will always be difficult. Uh, that is a problem we always see, especially with long-term policy priorities and objectives. In the latter area of reporting standards and accounting rules, uh, the financial markets themselves can make uh, good progress. And indeed, we've seen something happening at COP. They announced that an international sustainability standards board will be set up uh, soon, and they will surely play a role in helping accounting standards and, and, and uh, disclosures improve. And that is all required for them to play their role. So it's, it's, that is one of the initiatives and also previously uh, announced earlier in, uh, this year by the European Union, the taxonomy for sustainable sustainable activities, which will surely become a blueprint uh, around the world over the next few years. So that's all happening. Uh, overall, I would say things are moving on. Uh, there's definitely momentum, but it's still quite vague what is actually on the table and how quickly that money can be moved. And changing tack a little bit and moving to finance for adaptation, can you talk us through um, what we've achieved at COP? Yes, I mean, adaptation was one of the four big objectives of COP26, and that was mainly discussed in the context of climate finance. And climate finance is really about rich countries pledging to help developing and emerging countries deal with climate change, deal with in the sense of adaptation and also mitigation. In 2009, the rich countries pledged to offer $100 billion a year to those countries that need uh, to mitigate and adapt to climate change. And that has been very, very, very slow progress, uh, quite tedious, really. And uh, the target uh, to, to meet this pledge has now been moved to 2023. So we are hopefully on track now to achieve 100 billion dollars of transfers from the rich world to help uh, with adaptation and mitigation in emerging and, and um, uh, uh, countries. Uh, we're not quite there yet. So rich countries have offered to increase the funding available for adaptation to get us to the 100 billion. The question obviously is, is that enough? Um, I think that is a very thorny issue and future COPs will have to will have to come back to that because that money, even though it's obviously a big number, will probably not be enough uh, for, for a large part of the world uh, to deal with uh, climate change. Thanks, Frank. And alongside financial markets, there is also a carbon market. And ever since the Paris Agreement in 2015, countries have negotiated Article 6. And Article 6, uh, just as a reminder for those who are unfamiliar with it, is about making cross-border carbon trading possible. Can you tell us what happened at COP26, please? Yes, absolutely. Uh, so, so indeed, it has been said many, many times, in order to make Paris, the Paris Agreement really work and stick, Article 6, how to deal with uh, cross-border carbon trading, would have to be uh, addressed and sorted out. Uh, it sounds quite technical. Um, no progress had been made previously. There has been no progress, so that's a real plus. And the progress has been that uh, countries have now agreed on what the rule book ought to be. And one big question um, had been <clears throat> who should uh, actually use the carbon credits uh, and, and so to avoid double counting countries have to now agree on i'm using it you're using it i'm selling it so that has been uh, agreed that's great progress what has not been agreed is actually how to uh, enforce that uh, who is actually monitoring and implementing this rule book so um, I'm now going to move over to talk about um, cars and transport in general and bringing in Charlie. Charlie, you were at COP. 
and week two featured a transport day. What's your key takeaway? Yeah, so I felt the transport sector actually came under some reasonable close scrutiny in Glasgow with quite a lot of side events actually focusing on aviation, shipping and road transport. And of those, I think road transport got the most attention, which isn't surprising considering uh, the amount of emissions that come from that sector. Um, but I actually think the, the the most striking thing from COP was actually the lack of really large-scale new announcements. Now, there were some, but if we're going to get anywhere towards net zero by 2050, then you're going to need to see ICEs being phased out in the 2030s. And there was a noticeable absence of hard targets from some of the world's biggest markets, so Germany, China, US, about putting in any form of, of, of hard stop on ICE sales. And I think that kind of lack of framework is also holding back pledges from some of the key automakers, be they Japanese, American, Chinese or German. Some have obviously committed, but then there's some some reasonably large players who haven't as well. And I kind of feel that they might be waiting for a bit more solid commitment from governments until they do. Um, and again, say 2035 is so important because you've got to think about the life cycle of of an automotive. Anything that gets produced in the, the late 2030s or in the 2040s is likely to still be on the road in the 2050s. So it wasn't all doom and gloom, though. I think that there there was, again, a... A focus on the fact that EVs have come down in cost, their penetration is increasing rapidly, albeit from a from a fairly low base, and the technologies are still improving. Um, I think the other area where we saw some movement was on heavy duty vehicles, which probably have have been stickier in terms of their emissions than than the light duty sector. And we saw uh, the first ever global memorandum of understanding on zero emission truck and buses, and I think that is significant, but in terms of CIU's base case, um, we're going to need to see a lot more change and a lot more legislation before we significantly change our, our, our forecast, I think. So we asked the question right at the beginning, um, is COP26 uh, real progress or hot air? And I think the answer really depends on who you are and what your expectations of COP26 were COP President Alok Sharma called COP26 a fragile win uh, with 1.5 degrees Celsius on life support in the eyes of EMs at the front line of climate change who wanted more guaranteed finance for adaptation, loss and damage, there was disappointment. So the answer really depends on, on your perspective. In some areas, there was real progress but in others, there was also quite a lot of hot air. And with that, I'd like to thank our speakers, Frank, Charlie, Shankadeep and Dimitri for their expert knowledge today. And thank you to all of you who have joined our podcast, The Big Questions. Thank you.